This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Simon Kemp, founder and CEO of Capios on the Digital in 2018 Global Report that was launched last week. In the second part of our conversation, we discuss whether the future of humanity is equally and evenly distributed with the internet across the world, the profile of the Instagram user, and trends on e-commerce this year. Welcome back with me, Simon Kemp, founder and CEO of Capios and global consultant for We Are Social. And this time around, we did it really early because it's just one day after the Global Digital Report in 2018 is published. And seriously, with Simon here, I need to get him for the hour. So the second part of the conversation, I think we spent the first half talking about the messaging apps and probably the most interesting data point that the whole internet is now talking about. (laughs) But (laughs) I want to get to the other parts of this report because that doesn't do justice to the Global Digital Report because I know you guys have put out so much stuff on things like profile of users, you know, talking about e-commerce and even about whether humanity's uh, distribution in, when it comes to internet access. So the first question is, is the future of humanity distributed when it comes to internet access? Are we going to see the remainder of Asia connect to the internet in the next three to five years? The remainder, oh, that's a really tough prediction. I, I think we'll see an accelerated number of people coming online across Asia for sure. I think that the numbers themselves in this year's report may be a little bit unfair when it comes to comparisons with the West. And let me give you some context to that. When you look at internet penetration rates, a lot of these are based on, so for developing economies in particular, it's very difficult to get accurate, up-to-date information for internet use. So a lot of the time we're using things like Facebook active users as a proxy. Anybody listening to this, I'm sure already knows, you can only really have a Facebook account once you reach the age of 13. Now that obviously leaves a very large number of people around the APAC region under the age of 12 who are obviously not able to get onto things like Facebook. And so they're underrepresented in those numbers. So actual penetration rates of internet use amongst adults is way higher than the numbers that we have reported in those stats this year, simply because we present it against total population. It's the only fair way to compare one nation to another. But I think you'll probably find that internet penetration across Asia is, is higher than it seems based on those numbers. But nonetheless, there are still a significant number of people who are unconnected. That is changing, not just in Asia. Obviously, it's changing rapidly in Africa, as we discussed in the previous episode as well. But it's as those people come online, we're looking at a slightly different kind of demographic compared to the existing users. Inevitably, there are two types of users that have found it perhaps more difficult to come online over recent years that is now starting to be able to come online. The sort of lower socioeconomic groups in particular. So it's it's important to note that it's still expensive for a lot of the less well-off people around Asia to be able to come online. They need a device. And sure enough, the cost of a smartphone is coming down, but it's still an important investment for a lot of these people. And the ongoing cost of data, much as for a lot of re- uh, listeners in the sort of Western world, they take it for granted that they have always on data access. But for a lot of these people, it involves making a sacrifice. You know, it is, do I go out with my friends or do I spend some money on buying some top-ups for my data plan? It's that level of choice that these people have to make. So I think, you know, from that perspective, it's been a challenge. There's also the challenge of literacy when it comes to using the internet. And that might seem a little bit strange, but you know, being able to read and write is 
an absolute necessity for the internet today, if you think about most of the content that we consume, it is text-based. Obviously, video is becoming a more important part of that world of content on the internet. But as you can guess, video takes a lot more data. And as we've just, just discussed, data costs money for a lot of these people. And it's, it's sort of pay-as-you-go model. So using data to watch videos requires a much greater investment. So we're going to see a shift in how the internet works over the next, I would reckon, 12 to 18 months to be able to cater to that new set of users. So especially the levels of literacy. And literacy isn't just about being able to read and write full stop. It's about being able to read and write the languages that are spoken on the internet. So if you look at India, for example, obviously a huge number of different languages being spoken in India, and there is a widespread level of English understanding, but it's definitely not at the level that you might see in the US, for example. And there simply isn't the content available on the internet at the scale that we see in the English-speaking world that is going to make it possible for users in a country like India to get the same internet experience that we're used to in the West. So I think you know, that, that one is going to be a really, really important shift. I think I'll, I'll pause what I'm saying there because I want you to ask your questions on it. Otherwise, I'll go into my massive rant about why the next million are important. But yeah, you're right. This, this is the key theme for me in this year's report. So let's get stuck into that data. I have an interesting data point. So last year, I think Reliance Joe basically created a J-curve in terms of obtaining a lot of users. And I think they turned profitable after they turned on the monetization model on that. And I think what, what was one interesting data point, and I hear this from different industry observers. So one interesting experiment that Reliance Joe actually did in India is, suppose I give you the phone and internet unlimited, how much data that you really need in order to use per month? And they found out that the magic number is about 29 gigabytes. Which means on, yeah, <laughs> on average, it doesn't matter what you do, but actually of the 29 gigabits, it's just basically the limit of basically watching too much videos, basically, Yeah. On, on that. Now, if I were to turn that question around into coming into trying to get the internet for the unconnected, because I think the current handsets that are actually for a smartphone, I think a reasonable 3G smartphone should be somewhere around US 40 to $50 as compared to five years ago, which is about $100. We're talking about this sub-100 smartphones. Do you think that that would be able to lift the other parts of Asia that is not connected into the internet? And of course, you also have Facebook and Google basically paying for the internet, right? If you subscribe to my apps and on this particular telco, you will basically get Facebook for free and Google for free. Do you see that dynamic happening as well? Yeah, so I think th these are really interesting business models. You know, let's talk about the commercial side of this first. So I think your your reference to the Reliance Jio thing is amazing. They gave, what, free data for six months, was it? Unlimited? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely staggering. What a really brave move for that company to do that. The fact that you were saying it's 29 gigabytes. I'll, I'll make an honest confession. On my mobile device, I think I probably use two gigabytes a month, maybe three, but that's because I'm spending most of my time in front of a ridiculously fast connection to a laptop. You know, I live in Singapore. I have one of the fastest connections in the world. I'm very fortunate in that perspective. But yeah, when, once you get out into places like Southeast Asia and a lot of the developing economies, they only have the mobile device and obviously therefore they don't have that luxury of a, a fixed line to a nice MacBook. You know, they're going to be using their $50 smartphone that you just referenced as well and they're going to be relying on those mobile connections. But if you think about that compared to even just a couple of years ago, the opportunities that that brings to people 
both on a cultural but also on a business perspective. You can see why this is such an important change in the way that a lot of those economies work. Obviously, from you know, you, you look at people's lives, the ability to watch YouTube videos wherever they are is great. The ability to chat with their friends is wonderful. But when you start to look at the commercial opportunities that the internet brings to these people, then it, it's clear why a lot of organizations like the United Nations, UNESCO, you name it, they're all saying that bringing connectivity to everybody in the world that wants it is a basic fundamental human right and is also the engine that is going to drive all of things like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So having an internet connection is an important way of being able to find a job or even if you are a farmer in a rural area, being able to know what the weather forecast for the next few days is going to look like so that you can harvest your crops or protect your, your cattle or whatever it may be. You know, these are really basic things that a lot of us that use the internet to play things like Candy Crush and you know, catch up on celebrity gossip, we just don't appreciate how important these opportunities are for a lot of people in the developing world. This is not a flippant, in a way of passing the time, this is an essential part of running your day-to-day -day life. What does that mean from an APAC perspective? It means that as companies like Google and even Facebook strive to serve those next billion users, they're, they're going to be looking at what is it that they actually need. So I mean, you've mentioned that they need 29 gigabytes a day video. They're going to need video. So how do we develop a new compression format for videos that makes it easier for people to be able to watch videos without spending all of the money that they've just been able to earn through these new opportunities on then paying for their data plan? Something as simple as catering to the different languages. If the operating system is not perfect for using the character set I use it in my language, then why not focus on doing voice search instead? Now, I know a lot of the time, we, you know, if you looked at any of the 2018 digital trends reports that came out at the beginning of the year, and it's talking about artificial intelligence and virtual reality, a lot of the time people are talking about voice as the next big thing because of things like Amazon Echo. I think that's important too, but that's not why voice is going to take off. It's not asking Amazon to add things to your car that is the biggest driver behind voice. It's catering to the people that don't speak English as a first language. It's catering to people with lower levels of literacy who aren't going to be able to type stuff into Google or then read the results that come out of that either. So this is why voice is important. It's not just an e-commerce story. It's not just shiny objects in our kitchen in the US. It is being able to make an internet that is accessible to everybody. Here's the interesting bit, right? China is the microcosm of that voice search, isn't it? Because they have done it with the audio messages on that. If you really were to look at the amount of data that's going to be coming out just by China's audio messaging, it's going to really go past petabyte into exabyte range. So if you think from that view, China has really shown that voice search is important because that's a local language that needs to be spoken. And I think this is going to reflect into the next billion for India, because I think most parts of India, in the rural parts, they are not connected to the internet at all. Yeah, but I think that's, that's a really, really valuable point. I think when you look at somewhere like China, I don't speak Mandarin, I don't let alone type it, but you know, watching my Chinese friends typing Chinese characters into especially a smartphone, God, it's hard work. <laughs> and I think, you know, from that perspective, that's obviously a, a really good driver to then just saying, you know, if we can use our voices instead of a keyboard, then we're definitely going to try and do that. So, you know, it's, there's practical drivers behind a lot of this as well. And I think it's that convenience and simplicity as much as it is about catering to 
whether it's lower levels of literacy or whatever else, you know, people will always default to the most natural and the most convenient way of doing things. And, you know, outside of places like the US, where English is default and we've sort of built systems that are catered to that language and cultural world once you get out of that cultural world which is the majority of the world let's face it you're going to find different ways of doing things and i think that companies like google and facebook they know that they need to persuade their shareholders that they are going to be the big part of the next billion users world as well so obviously you know catering to four billion is great but the next billion shareholders are always looking at what's coming next where does the money come from and the commercial realities and the economies of scale that these companies are striving for mean that they're, they're less likely to try and create a two-tier system that caters to developed world and developing world. They're going to want to see how they can incorporate the same functionality for everybody. And from that perspective, we are going to see voice trickling back across from the systems that these companies have developed for developing economies and coming back into the developed economies as well. So I confess, I still find it difficult to naturally default to voice search because I've had what 15, 20 years of using Google. And I, you know, it's a system that is natural for me. It's convenient now, but I know that in the next couple of years, it's going to come to the stage where I look at it. And especially, you know, I look at my young niece and nephew and the way that they use voice control on their phones and I go, ah, right, I get it now. I see why I should be doing that too. So I think, you know, a lot of us that are making these decisions at business level, we're older and we've got more experience of using the internet we've developed things that we're comfortable with and when people say voice control is a big thing we sort of we almost score on it because we're we're so satisfied i suppose with the things that we already do but it's those younger users it's those new users coming online that will shape the future of the internet and we're going to have to adapt the way that we do things to them because they're the big audience they're our consumers they're our customers and we want to make sure that the stuff that we do appeals to them as much as possible. So my observation is that Google has started to learn to localize. The next billion initiative that's run by my friend uh, Caesar Sengupta, and I think they recently launched a payments app in India, which I didn't expect them to be more successful than all the other apps that they ever had. And the data is really interesting on that. Whereas where I see Facebook, they're still trying to stick to what they have and try to think that they can scale it, which I think that there's going to be a problem for them moving forward. I think coming back to the, and another part of the conversation is, I think one very interesting piece that came out from this year's digital report was the profile of Instagram users. I guess my question is, how are they different from Facebook users and all the other types of users? I use Instagram more than I use Facebook. In fact, I deleted Facebook app recently from my phone. <laughs> heard a lot of people saying that actually over the last couple of days that they've deleted Facebook. It's quite interesting. And do you know, I was really surprised by this data. So there was me all expecting when I started collecting this Instagram data, I was expecting to tell a story of older users versus younger users. So a bit of context before I tell you that story. We've collected Instagram user data for, I think, 200 countries plus around the world. So if you want to know what Instagram use looks like in your country, then you'll find at least the high level data for every country. I've not broken it down by age because I have to do it all manually. It's incredibly painful. But yeah, the global profile at least. Do you know what really surprised me, right? Under 35 years users, how big do you think the difference between Instagram versus Facebook is? I'll let your, your listeners just ponder that for a second you know so the percentage of users under the age of 35 how big do you think the difference is between facebook and instagram you know i thought oh it's gonna be a massive difference 66 percent of 
Instagram users under the age of 35 compared to 69% on Facebook. So the difference is negligible. It's fascinating. The Instagram users are a lot older on average than I thought. And, you know, that, that really cracks me up. So when you, when you look at Instagram users, obviously the older you get, the less people use Instagram. We've got 17 million people around the world over the age of 65 using Instagram. But, you know, 17 million is still pretty impressive. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot broader than I expected. Maybe I'm just naive. Um, I've sort of drunk the Kool-Aid of Instagram's popular amongst those millennial influencer audiences. But it's popular broadly. It, it's a very internationally used app across lots of different age groups. So the millennial thing about them being the largest user group of Instagram is actually BS then? No, it's not, it's not BS. It's just that it's, it's broader than I expected. So I think, you know, if you look at the, the actual data, the largest single group is still the 18 to 24 year olds, but only just. 25 to 34 then coming in there as well. So you've got almost quarter of a billion people aged 25 to 34 that use Instagram. Then there's quite a big drop after that. So roughly half, I would guess, in the 35 to 44 compared to the 25 to 34. And then obviously it it slopes down quite rapidly after that. But yeah, I think 13 to 17 year olds, it's a very small group. So there are more 45 to 54 year olds using Instagram than there are 13 to 17 year olds. That really surprised me. I did not expect that. So that's one data point. So now I have this question then. The US government and media have been giving Facebook a lot of issues. Are the numbers showing something otherwise? My other question is, I think I've sort of tell you that I've just deleted Facebook's app. Is Facebook really declining? This is a really, really interesting question. And the data versus the reality are not gonna match. I know that sounds like a bit of an odd thing to say because I base an awful lot of my reputation on data. When I look at the data, there's a lot of stuff in here that doesn't make sense. I've not cleansed the data properly yet, so I'm not quite ready to talk about it in great detail. I think we should probably save this for a future episode, but nonetheless, what, what I do have, I'll give you some broad trends. There are more accounts active on Facebook this time in 2018 than there were this time last year. So we saw 15% growth in active user accounts over the last 12 months. I'm not going to question whether or not that data is representative of the number of unique users using Facebook, but there is still growth and it's still impressive growth. And I think, you know, that the issues that we see on Facebook will be replicated across any other platform as well. There is inevitably duplication. There is inevitably some bot activity amongst all of that as well. But Facebook is still growing and we've got to give them credit for all the propaganda and the nonsense that we see in the media. They are still the world's most popular platform and they're particularly popular in developing economies where people are coming online for the first time and Facebook is a big draw for them. So, you know, let's give them their props. They are still the big draw across the internet and they're still very popular. But the underlying question that you're asking, what's going on? We have seen some declines, especially in Africa, which really surprised me. So year on year, in some countries, we've seen a 30% drop in active Facebook use. Now, I'm guessing there's something more to that than than just preference. I don't know whether it's block, I don't know whether it's because of cultural issues or whatever else, but there has been a decline in some countries. There's very few of them. I mean, we're only looking at you know less than 20 countries out of 250 more that we've got access to, sorry, 230 more that we've got access to. So very few countries are seeing an actual decline. But 
it's where those declines happen within a country that are quite interesting. So different user age groups and whatever else. So I think we talked last year about the number of 18-year-olds, males around the world using Facebook versus the number of 18-year-olds alive in the world today. The lack of balance, shall we say, <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic here. The representation, 100% of 18-year-olds using Facebook at a particular age group is already a bit questionable. But we're at the stage for a number of individual age bands now where we're well past the 100% penetration rate. So I'll be publishing that data a little bit later once I can be confident that it's representative and it's not sort of mistakes in my data. Yeah, it could be confirmation bias, right? Because even though it's declining in the US, let's say even if it is, the population as versus to the rest of the world is almost not really about less than 10%. So if the developing countries growth rate is actually increased, it will actually not show them declining at all. This perception, I, th- I think the reality is different from what the perception and the narrative that the Western press are spinning. I think that that is the part that I find it very contrived when I listen to all these American media saying that, oh, Facebook is doomed and etc. So there is this thing that I'm kind of trying to get to with this conversation with you as well. And you, you, know, you raise a really important point there. The US population compared to global population, less than 5%, so 95% the rest of the world is quite important as well. I share your frustrations. I read an awful lot of stuff in the media, which is clearly based on data that is only about US users, and it is simply not representative of the rest of the world. Yes, the US economy is important, but China, India, you add those two up, way more important, right? That's one of the reasons why I make this report every year is that I want to understand for my own satisfaction (laughs) what is going on outside the US. The stuff you read in the Western media does not represent what the rest of the world is doing online. And if you look at what's happening around APAC, it does not match the trends that we see in the US. Nope, let's challenge the data every time. Whenever you see something in the media and you go, that doesn't represent my world, come and check the stats in this report first. If you're still dubious, drop me a note and say, I'm not convinced this data represents what I see on ground in my country, because that's the stuff that I love. It's once you start to get into the real stories of what people are doing, the data's important. The data represents a lot of activity, but it's not the human stories. And it's, I think we talk about this every year. It's the human stories that matter most. It's what people use these things for that is a more valuable set of insights than just what they're using and when they use it. Okay, so I'm not going to let you go until we have a short discussion on e-commerce. What are the major trends and are we seeing the shift, particularly in developing countries, that there is a, the balance between online and offline retail is actually flipped over yet? So unfortunately, I don't have a lot of accurate data for the developing world. We've got some fantastic numbers from Statista this year on e-commerce use in a lot of the developed economies, but unfortunately, I don't have a lot of deep dive data for the developing economies. So a lot of it goes back to what we talked about was it earlier this episode or last episode? I can't remember now. In terms of the mobile payments stuff. So a lot of the payments going on in the developing world are micropayments. You know, they're payments between individuals. They're sort of payments to smaller e-commerce outfits. The amount of money being spent just on consumer goods is pretty staggering across the, the Western world already. But I think once we start to factor in what's happening in the developing world, the jump would be massive. I would love to see those numbers. If anybody can share them with me, please let me know, even if it's just on a country by country basis. But that's 
that's going to be one of the standout stories. If we manage to get hold of e-commerce data for the developing world, I think it will probably be our number one story next year because the growth is massive. And as more people come online, inevitably, that is going to be one of the things that they're looking to. If you look at what happens in India, for example, with things like Paytm and stuff like that, that data is not reflected in the data in this year's report simply because we don't have public access to it. But you know, I, I, would, I, would, I would get very nerdily excited about that data if I could get hold of it. <laughs> so I'm afraid I cannot give you an answer to that one. Despite 20,000 data points in this year's reports, that's one of the gaps. But here's the interesting analogy. I, I mean, the world is now talking about China's One Belt, One Road initiative, right? Doing all the physical infrastructure, their own transportation, energy, but they also forgot about the connectivity infrastructure that what Tencent and Alibaba is actually doing across Southeast Asia. They're trying to make all the payment engines that are that are previously been developed in China and exert that into the developing countries like Indonesia where there are large populations. And they're also doing indirectly through investment in Paytm in India. So that is going to be something that is interesting to watch for me, at least on this e-commerce front. It's almost like another Belt and Road initiative, but going through the digital piece. Yeah, it's one belt, one road, one phone, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Simon, many thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Great to talk to you, but I know I'm not going to let you off because I know you're going to do some deep dive into the report and then you're going to come back with a set of insights and I'm going to be calling you and say, hey, this is not the data I'm going to see, right? Yeah, that's right. So I, I was pausing just as you asked that last question, whether or not I should go into more stuff. I know you've got to wrap this up in a couple of minutes, but there is so much more stuff that we can talk about. Um, so my, my first offer, if you want to do another session on this in a couple of weeks, once you've had a chance to read all the data, just give me a shout. If any of your readers or your listeners, rather, I keep on saying readers, don't I? If any of your listeners want to dig into that data as well, um, once you've read the report, you'll find my contact details at the end of every report. So feel free to drop me your questions i'm going to give you my social details in just a minute but yeah i think once you've had a chance to know what your listeners are most interested in in that data let's schedule another chat where we get into some of the the nitty-gritty of the numbers pretty sure one of my most loyal audience rob o'brien from the u.s will be sending that thing on tweet back to us and said you should cover these things (laughs) (laughs) good i'm looking forward to it brian send us your questions yeah so now closing I mean, the last time you recommended the Clue Train Manifesto. So this time around, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything that just made an impact to your work and personal life? Yeah, I'm going to go back to another old book again this time, I'm afraid. But um, as part of some research I was doing recently, I dug out a copy of The Idea Virus by Seth Godin, which was probably the most influential book in terms of shaping the way I look at marketing. And one of the things that got me really into digital marketing, full stop. So it first came out as a PDF back in 1999. I'm showing my age here. Um, But yeah, so the idea virus by Seth Godin, it will sound dated if you read it again now, it sounded slightly dated to me, but the underlying principles in it still hold absolutely true. And it is easily one of the best guides to cracking fundamental thinking for a digital world. Hmm. I probably will just share a book that I'm currently reading. And I think it's probably one of the most interesting books that I've ever read about democracies is called How Democracies Die. And the idea is that it's actually looking at the symptoms of how democracies decay. In fact, if you were to look at Venezuela, Germany, and even now the US, the symptoms are actually starting to show on uh, the decay of democracies and subsequently lead to authoritarianism. So I think this is one book that I would recommend. 
Fascinating. Very topical as well. Thank you for that. Yeah. So my last question to you, how did my audience find you? <laughs> Hopefully they've seen some of the stuff on social media already over the last few days. Um, but nonetheless, uh, if you want to get me on Twitter, you'll find me as Eskimon. So it's Eskimo with a name on the end of it. Um, on LinkedIn, if you search for Simon Kemp, you'll find a nice black and white picture of me looking very serious. It's totally not representative of my real life, but nonetheless, I try and look professional. Um, so yeah, Simon Kemp, I'm also Eskimon on uh, LinkedIn as well. If you do a search for that, you should be able to find me. So uh, I'm still old school. Uh, Facebook, I'm available, but it's a very personal thing. So Twitter and LinkedIn are the best ways to find me. You can find me at Bernard Leung or at BernardLeung.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast. Tune in and of course, Google Play in the US market. And tweet to me, rate us five star on iTunes and a star on Overcast. And of course, I'm always going to plug that. So once again, Simon, thank, many thanks for coming on the show. And I'm going to talk to you again soon. Maybe you should meet for a beer to talk about this. We should. We should do one of these podcasts over a beer instead of having my construction noise above us. Sorry for the interference, yeah. folks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking forward to joining you and all your listeners again probably very soon.